Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Are you a checkboxer when it comes to quality management system compliance? Or are you making that leap and that shift to becoming a true quality professional? Well, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, where Mike Drews and I dive into the topic of how to be true quality professional and how to ensure that your quality management system is effective in helping you run your business in a smarter way that will help benefit patients. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. Exciting times in our industry. (laughs) Well, maybe uh, not everyone would agree with exciting times. Maybe some would even say uncertain times in the industry with all the things that are happening in EU, Canada, you know, FDA, and so on and so forth. Lots of things that are happening in this this world right now, and sometimes you know it seems like there's a lot of things that are changing uh, in front of us. But today we're going to dive into uh, a topic that you know are things really changing? <laughs> because some of the data would suggest that maybe not. And with me today, I have Mike Drews, president of Vascular Sciences, in. Mike and I are going to explore some data, some recent data on FDA 483s. Are are these training failures or is there something that we can learn from the information uh, from FDA? So, Mike, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thanks, John. I look forward to our discussion. Well, you shared an article with me uh, the other day, and and we'll provide a link to it uh, for our listening audience that was on med device online and it was just a executive summary type of of overview of fda 43s from from 2017 and uh it's pretty insightful and i think the article was very well written and i thought we might dive into some of the, the things that you know that are expressed in this article but more importantly what do we do about it sound okay with you that sounds great, John. And by the way, I would just add quickly, based on your introduction, it reminds me of the French philosopher who said, the more things change, the more they remain the same. So true. And so true. And and I think industry, we have uh, the the data doesn't lie. You know, uh, <laughs> there's this old saying that I, that I used to hear from, from a, an old quality engineer that I worked with years ago, and God, we trust all others bring bring data. And, and the data is, <laughs> is, is very clear here. But um, let me start with this question. How, how do you think uh, our, our, the medical device industry is doing in terms of having good quality systems? Well, you know, John, that's a terrific question. And obviously, all companies uh, are required to have quality systems in place. But here are some uh, statistics that the audience may or may not be familiar with. So for the medical device industry, in both fiscal year 2016 and 2017, FDA issued approximately 1,483s to companies in each of those these two last years. Now, putting those numbers into context, and this is where I was, quite frankly, surprised myself, 
that number of 1,043s per year is comparable to the total number of 483s for drug companies, biotech companies, and veterinary companies combined. Let yeah, me that, say that one more time. Yeah, that's the, the, that's the medical yeah, device hang, hang on, industry. Michael. Sorry, I'm not trying to interrupt you, but folks, this is really, really important. So take take note of this. Go ahead, Mike. Sorry. Yes, I'm so, that's okay. Uh, and, and, and again, this is a surprise to me. I think it's a, probably a surprise to you putting these numbers in context. But about a thousand warning letters per year for medical device industries, uh, that number is comparable to the total number of warning letters that drug companies, biotech companies, and veterinary product companies have received combined. Um, so that's, you know, so I hate to say it, but, you know, maybe our industry is not doing as well as we would like to think. And taking it a, a tiny step further, uh, in a small but unfortunately growing number of cases, um, the FDA is issuing more consent degrees, which, as you know, John, is, a, is an even more extreme uh, situation. In a nutshell, oftentimes consent decrees um, are imposed on companies that have violations, oftentimes the same violations, over and over and over again. And quite frankly, you know, FDA is getting pissed off, pardon my, my directness, by, uh, you know, going back to the same company and seeing the same or similar problems. So, you yeah. know, when I, when I alluded to what, the, you know, the French philosopher, uh, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, said, the more things change, the more they remain the same. Uh, perhaps this is an example of that. Well, and, and that stat is real surprising to me, too, because, you know, before I saw that in black and white, and again, this is a case, the data is there. Uh, don't, don't believe me. Don't believe Mike. You know, go to the FDA data. It's very, very clear. Because before that, I would have thought, oh, well, pharmaceutical companies are, are getting way more observations and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I suppose there might have been a time I haven't, uh, I'll confess, I haven't dove back into the history of the past 10, 15 years. But what can we learn from this? We're, I'm sure there are some common reasons that I know there are common reasons. This is a bit of a loaded question. Uh, but, but what are some of the most common reasons that companies are getting 483s? Well, according to the FDA, John, and really none of this should be a surprise to our audience, some of the most common reasons that companies get 483s include th including things like having a lack of or inadequate procedures for complaint handling, for CAPAs, for purchasing controls, for process validation, for MDR procedures, for handling non-conforming products. Um, those are, you know, right off of the, uh, the FDA uh, statistics. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, this might sound a little harsh to, to some people in this industry. But in my opinion, John, there's absolutely no excuse for this. You know, they, 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 these kinds of things should not be happening, especially at this frequency. Um, and, and also given the fact that we have thousands and thousands of pages of regulation, but for some reason there seems to be a disconnect between what the regulation requires and what companies are actually doing. That's true. And, and I know this you know, just we're just talking about kind of the last two years, but but those reasons that Mike stated for the most common reasons why companies get 483 observations, this this is um, this goes back at least 10 years. I mean, these the lack of uh, or inadequate CAPA procedure has been like the top reason for 
483 observation from from FDA uh, for med device companies for like 10 years straight. You know, it's not, it, and it's not even close. It's not even close. Uh, this is the most common reason. And as Mike said, the, these regulations have not been changing. Uh, these regulations have been in place for a good 20 years. And even before that, you know, the expected best practices, you know, that the predate the QSR, the GMPs and, and those sorts of things, these are not new. The, the practices, the expectations, the, you know, the, this, is, this is old, old information. And as Mike said, there's thousands of pages of regulations. There's, there's week-long conferences on each and every one of these topics. There's webinars, there's content. So, you know, we got to do something about it. You know, and Mike, I'll, I'll, I'll ask, is training the solution well, that's a good question, John, because the last thing that I want to do is just have a, 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 you know, again, pardon my candor here, but a Mitch and moan and groan session, you know, complaining. And I certainly don't want to be, you know, blaming the FDA or anything. The most important thing is what can we learn and how to move forward? So how do we ultimately make the world a better place? So there's a number of, of ways that this can be done. There are, for example, software tools that, that uh, you know, Greenlight offers that, that, you know, makes these kinds of things easier. Training, obviously, is an important uh, piece of this as well, because any tool, uh, I hope you would agree, John, including software tools, really comes down to the person who, the, the, the person who's using it, their ability to understand exactly what they're doing. In other words, what good is giving a, a, somebody a screwdriver if they don't know what a screwdriver is to be used for or how to use it? So, uh, so, so, the tr so training and the tools I think that, that people use are, are, are sort of two sides of the, of the same coin. But delving into the training piece for just a moment, the reason why I bring that up is because one of the most common things that uh, companies agree to do with the FDA when they get a warning letter or in more extreme cases when they get a, a consent decree is to provide more training to their employees. And this sounds like an admirable uh, goal, a, a good solution, but in reality, it doesn't seem to be working because you know, of the statistics that we shared you know, at the beginning of our conversation. And here are some interesting learning statistics for you in the audience, John. For a typical person, after they go through some sort of a training, just one hour after they've attended, they've forgotten about 50% of what they quote-unquote learned. And after a month, that number goes to about 80%. In other words, after a month, only about uh, most people only remember about 20% of what they learned. And my question is, is that learning? You know, there's a big difference to get be between memorizing versus learning. You know, when somebody learns something, in my opinion, you could never forget it, even if you want to, right? So I think the emphasis, unfortunately, in a lot of training programs is just simply, you know, memorizing, or in this yeah. particular case, here's what the regulation says, step one, step two, step three, follow it like a recipe, just like a computer executing lines of code one after another without thinking. I don't know about you, John, but to me, that's not learning. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm um, people that have worked with me uh, and have joined, you know, teams that I've been a part of. Uh, one of the things that that I often warn them about 
from the very beginning is I'm a baptism by fire kind of person. Uh, and what I mean by that is, is that I think I, I can sit and talk to you for days and days and days about, you know, what the, this says and what the, that regulation says and what this procedure says. But the real proof is getting you in and hands-on and applying the, the concepts and the principles because, you know, that's learning in my, in my personal experience. And, you know, for all those companies who are, who are saying, and this is one of the things that I think through this, there, there might be that we, we've talked in the past about the root cause, you know, why are companies struggling with, with uh, their quality system and complaints and CAPA procedures and all, all those, those items that we mentioned a moment ago. Maybe the, 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 the root cause is more about our training program. Um, maybe it's it's because you know we're we're too laissez-faire about how we we train people. We're not actually getting them to learn. Um, we're just checking a box that says here they they read the procedure. Voila, you're, you're trained. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think application, understanding, learning. Yeah, it's a very key point. Very key point. Well, I agree completely, John. And I'll share with you an example right out of my world. Uh, and this might resonate with you and perhaps some people in the audience. But a couple of years ago, uh, I was invited to come into uh, a medical device company. This happens to be a very large company, a Fortune 500 medical device company, because they uh, received approximately a dozen warning letters, a dozen 483s, over the course of, I think, about 18 months or so. And one of the things that, um, uh, that, that they agreed to do with the FDA is to offer more training, specifically design control training, for their employees. And they asked me to come in and, and to do this. And we offered, I think, a total of about uh, 10 or 15 different sessions on design controls. This was mandatory for everybody working in R&D and manufacturing and a few other areas, mandatory training. Well, at the end of this, John, approximately 60% of the people who were supposed to be there actually showed up. So my lesson to be learned (laughs) from this experience was, I guess, mandatory can be interpreted in different ways by different people. (laughs) And the other thing that I thought I would share about this particular story is... They asked me to do design control training, John, and I know you're a, you know, a subject matter expert in design controls. They asked me to do this training in two-hour sections, in two-hour blocks. In other words, they asked me to teach everybody everything they need to do, know about design controls in two hours. Oh, wow. As I think you can imagine, that's a pretty uh, yeah. Herculean task. Yeah, and is. regrettably, I had a few people after these sessions that walked out that shared, uh, you know, they were very candid with their feelings, they said that, uh, you know, this is nothing more than the company's attempt to tick that box on the form to say that, yes, they sent their employee to this two-hour design control training. Therefore, you know, all of our problems are solved. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, uh, there's a a term that uh, we, uh, maybe I should get a a trademark on it, but we call that a checkboxer, <laughs> somebody that's just checking a, <laughs> check, checking a box on, on the form, say, yep, we did it. But, but uh, you know, this is that real opportunity, I think, that, that we in this industry have is, is to really shift our mindset from just focusing on compliance. I, I, uh, I recall, uh, uh, and I'll paraphrase, that, that something that you said 
in the past that if you're just focused on compliance, you're just focused on the regulations, at best, you're going to be average. You're going to be a C student. And and the real opportunity here is to, to really elevate beyond just being a checkbox or just being compliance focused. We have an opportunity here to truly understand and apply uh, these principles, these best practices in a way that's going to improve the quality of our products and processes. And guess what? The patients who receive our, our products will be the beneficiary of that. You know, what better scenario? And, and, and there's a great opportunity for people to become focused on true quality, you know, so which kind of gets into, you know, the, what do we do about it in some respects? You know, how do we, what can we do from our from a quality system perspective, how do we measure the efficacy? You know, what what thoughts do you have about that? It's a great uh, question, John. And by the way, uh, what you just shared reminds me of uh, just something yesterday. You know, you referred to my academic res- reference. That is, when you meet your the regulatory requirements, uh, you're essentially academically a C student. I mentioned that in a conference call to a company in California just yesterday, and they said, oh, no, 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 we don't want to be a C student. We want to be an A student. <laughs> and I well, said, kudos to you for setting the bar that high. I just wish that everybody in this industry felt that way. Yeah, so coming sure. back to your question, John, about uh, about the efficacy, you know, we're all used to thinking about measuring the efficacy of our medical devices. But how many people think about measuring the efficacy of our training, or as we'll talk about in a moment, the efficacy of our of our quality systems? So let's talk about how do we measure the efficacy of our training. What do you think, John, here's a quick question for you. What do you think is the most common way that companies will demonstrate that they sent people to a particular training, whether it's on uh, <laughs> uh, 483s or design controls or what have you? Oh, uh, yeah, I, I did this once upon a time as as when I worked for, for a large company years ago. You know, there used to be the, the three-day seminar on... Uh, on design controls or whatever, you know, pick the topic. And I would, at the end of that, I would get this three inch binder full of all the, the slides that the quote trainers were presenting during the, the, the seminar or the conference. And at the end, I got this wonderful certificate that said that I had been trained on this thing. And, you know, and I, I punched three holes in it and put it in my little training binder and, and, uh, you know, I sent a copy to the training manager, and and that's all I did. So uh, I don't know if that's where you're going, but but uh, I well, would it is right where I'm going, John. And actually, even uh, a simpler place when you when you attend a training, whether it's in house or or uh, uh, out outside somewhere, what is what typically happens when you walk into the room or when the training begins? What's one of the first things that you're asked to do? Uh, boy, I'm drawing a blank. First things that I'm asked to do. Um, so basically to sign it. Oh, in sign words, in. Yeah, sign in. Sorry. Yeah, that to, was to, right there in front of me. Yeah, yes. Sign to, the sheet. To, sign to, the sheet. <laughs> sign the sheet. And that basically demonstrates that's the documentation that uh, that you attended this training. But why would attending a training uh, and actually learning something be uh, be synonymous? Think about yeah. it this way, John. If you needed surgery, would you ask your surgeon to see their attendance <laughs> records to, sh- to make sure that they showed up in medical school. Uh, you know, well, I'm being a bit facetious, a but I'm also being I'm also being very serious. If it's not good enough for surgeons, why should it be good enough for us? I I think that you know, demonstrating somebody attended a training by 
simply collecting a signature is a pretty low place to set the bar. And it also explains why not only we continue to have so many problems, but we continue to have the same kinds of problems over and over and over again. You know, Einstein, very smart guy, mm-hmm. said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a result. Seems to me we keep doing the same kind of thing over and over and expecting a different result. It's true. We we, we certainly do. And and I, you know, this is one of those things where, you know, from a green light perspective, if, if you can let me wax philosophical for a bit, um, you know, we we started this this business uh, for that purpose because you know my personal experience of working in in the medical device industry, or and well, I guess when I started this this company about five years ago, I'd been in the industry for about fifteen years at the time, and uh, you know I saw the same things over and over. It was maddening. You know, I, you and I were talking a little bit ago that we were sharing stories from from the trenches about you know how. Um, you know, we were sharing war stories, so to speak, where uh, clients have, you know, they, they're in this precarious situation because they they either ignored or or just didn't know or, or um, are just being blatant about the application of what they need to do of, as a medical device company. I mean, it's it's very clear there there are barriers to entry if you want to be a medical device company. There are certain behaviors and expectations. And, and you know, I always want... The companies that I work with to take this seriously because you know I, I keep going back to it, but we are making medical devices. We are trying to improve the quality of life. Everything that that uh, we're developing and manufacturing, there should be a purpose for it, and it should be to to save somebody's life or to sustain sustain somebody's life. And time and time and time again, uh, I would be called in to a company like you know, oh, we got FDA coming next week. Can you come and and clean things up? And it's like. Dude, it's too late. You know, if you haven't been doing this, there's not a, a damn thing that I can do in three days before the FDA inspector shows up to to paint a rosy picture. I mean, this has to be your mindset. You have to shift, uh, you know, flip the switch, so to speak, or shift the gear, so that you really understand how important this is. And don't just do it to check a box. If you're just doing this to check a box, then you miss the point. And that's why we've built the Greenlight platform. Is to help companies understand and give them visibility and to be that single source of truth so that as they're, they're developing products and, and assessing the risk and then launching the products into the marketplace, you can be proactive. You can understand what is happening to your products and processes, but it, it requires a company to shift to that next level. And, and for those companies that want to shift from being that C student uh, to just check the box to, to the A student, like Mike's client in, in California, I would encourage you to reach out to us at Greenlight Guru. Go to www.greenlight.guru and you can request more information. You can, uh, you can request a demo. We'd be happy to talk to you. And, and, and if you don't want to go that channel, reach out to me directly. I'd be happy to have a conversation with you. So anyway, I'll get off my soapbox now, Mike. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, no, 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 that's all great advice, John. And I could not agree more. And by the way, that scenario uh, that you described where somebody calls you in three days before an uh, inspection or an audit is an all-too-common scenario. And it really is uh, a Band-Aid solution at best. You know, you're, you're, you're really doing nothing more than kicking the can down the road. So, so bottom line, uh, when it comes to training, uh, and I spend a lot of my time doing 
training, and I know, John, you, you spend some of your time doing that as well. There are a heck of a lot better methods that we can use to make to do more effective training. Absolutely. And when it comes to the efficacy of our training, measuring the efficacy, we can do a heck of a lot better than just simply collecting a signature on a form. So let's move on to, to uh, quality systems, similar questions. Sure. So we talked about the measuring the efficacy of your training program. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I find very interesting in our industry is all companies are required to have quality systems, but they don't usually measure whether that quality system is working, whether it's effective. So one of the suggestions that I've made to many companies, John, and I would love to hear your two bits on this, is I have suggested to companies that they purposely interject problems in various phases, various processes, whether it's manufacturing or, or whatever, just to see if their uh, systems that they have in place are working, um, are effective, can detect that problem. Because after all, what good is having a quality system in place, even if it does meet the regulatory requirements, if it's not working? In my experience, John, most companies say that's a great idea, but we're not going to do it. Why? Because if they inject a problem and their system does not detect it, now what have they done? Now they have totally <laughs> invalidated their entire quality system. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that obviously, uh, you know, a problem. So what do you think on the, uh, about this idea, John, of, 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 of measuring the efficacy uh, of your system or validating your system, if you will? Well, I mean, that's, that's really what, we're, what the whole intent behind that is. I mean, I, you know, I, I go back to a, a wonderful stories and examples, not always <laughs> – uh, ones that you, the listener, should apply in your everyday life. But uh, I had another company call me the other day, and they're like, "Oh crap, we uh, we forgot to do management review in 2017. Can can you just come over and and spend a little bit of time and 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 make sure that we're we're checking the box?" And and I just kind of rolled my eyes, and I'm like, "You don't get it. You know, management review is is one of those mechanisms or or." times where we are evaluating the efficacy of our quality management system. Um, but all too often it is, well, we got to do this because you were supposed to do it once a year and, and let's, let's just go through and say, did we look at this? Did we look at this and, and look at this? It's, it's so surface level. People aren't getting into, into the, the details. They aren't getting into, you know, a really truly evaluating uh, how effective their, their systems are. And, you know, I'll take a, I'll add a twist to it a bit. You know, I, I think so many companies don't understand the value of internal auditing. You know, potentially the key to all of this, to ensuring uh, or measuring how effective your quality management system is, it comes with a robust internal auditing program. Uh, that's the best opportunity that that you have as a company to evaluate. Well, let's look at our capital process. How effective are we at that? But you have to you have to scrutinize it. You have to go into the depth of it and to really truly understand what's going on. And that that you have to look at it from all facets. You know, be holistic about it. Don't just look at how long it's taking you to close a capa and do this and do that. But truly understand the people who are involved in those processes. Do they understand? Have they learned how and what to do? Or did they just sign in? 
uh, at the training session uh, and put the the sign-in sheet, uh, a copy of that in their training file and say they were trained. So you know, we, we have a wonderful opportunity to, to really kind of elevate our, our performance at companies because the quality system, you know, if, if you, if you look at it in the right way, it is, it's, it's an opportunity to, to ensure that the practices that we have in place at our business are a well-oiled machine, you know, a good quality management system that's applied correctly is the best, you know, for those who are more business minded and, and looking at mitigating risk, a well-oiled, effective quality management system is the best risk mitigation from a business perspective that that we can possibly do as as business professionals. Well, you know, John, as as I'm sure many in our audience would 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 uh, agree, you're rich. You're really preaching to the choir. I could not agree more uh, with everything that you just said, and many of the. Uh, examples, one of many of the points that you just mentioned would be topics of discussions in and of themselves. And some of those you and I have talked about in, in previous discussions. But to kind of wrap this up, maybe we should uh, share with our audience some lessons to be learned and some uh, specific suggestions on how to move forward. Because as I said at the beginning, I don't want this to be just a bitch and moan and groan session. I don't want to be pointing, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, playing the blame game. So let me offer a few suggestions and then, sure. John, you can, you can do the same. So first of all, um, having a quality system in place, in my opinion, is not enough. Everybody has one, but we need to make sure that it works. We need to make sure that we somehow measure the efficacy of our quality systems. And in my opinion, just because the quality system meets the regulatory requirements or the quality requirements doesn't necessarily mean that your system works. So, uh, so, so piece of advice right. number one for the audience is, uh, is, is test your system, validate your system, just like you would validate your product. Yes. Uh, very, very similar idea. Do we need a regulatory or, or a quality requirement to tell companies to do that? Well, I would like to think not. I would like to think that companies would do that because they know from an engineering perspective it's the right thing to do. Regrettably, as we both would you know, know uh, that just doesn't happen. So maybe we do need a regulatory uh, requirement to do that. Well, Mike, um, one one could even argue that we already do have a regulatory uh, quality requirement to do that, you know, and and I think there, if if you interpret the the regulations and and the quality system requirements, that you know, I mentioned one example, quality audits. I mean, that's it's 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 there. I, I think one could also yeah, say, you're, yeah, you're right, you're right. I I stand corrected. It's it's in the interpretation, for sure. Uh, you know, but. But nonetheless, I, I, I think companies can do a better job at uh, measuring the oh, absolutely. Of, our, of, our, of our systems. Absolutely. And then the second piece of advice that I would leave the audience is uh, don't just think of this system as being uh, something that exists on paper. You have to follow it. You have to believe it. As John was describing a moment ago, you have to live it. And let me tell you, Many companies get, you know, you know, want to do this or, or, you know, are concerned because if the FDA comes into audit, uh, well, I'll tell you what my much bigger concern is, John. Uh, I've shared this with, with our audience, I think, in the past. A growing number, uh, a growing amount of my business is actually acting as, a, um, uh, as an expert witness in medical device 
product liability cases. And I have a couple of cases that I'm involved with right now where the company had quality, uh, certain requirements in their quality system that, w- that the company was not uh, following. And the attorneys love that situation because if I can point out that the company is not following this particular aspect of their quality system, then that opens up the door for the attorney to say, well, if you're not following that part of your system, what other parts of your system are you not following that we don't know about? So again, you know, a lot of companies fear the FDA. I say, no, you shouldn't fear the FDA. You should have a respect for the FDA, but don't fear them. Who should you fear? You should fear the product liability attorneys because they can impose a heck of a lot more damage than the FDA ever could. So if the folks in our audience need justification to their senior management on why to apply resources to do the things that John and I are talking about, uh, don't just use the FDA as a justification. Use product liability as well. So those are kind of my final thoughts, John. What, What else do you think the audience should remember from our discussion today? Yeah, folks, the, the data doesn't lie. I mean, it's very clear that we, as a medical device industry, have a, a lot of work to do, frankly, when it comes to implementing effective quality management systems. Uh, I think to the point that Mike just made, a lot of people are just focused on, yep, we got the procedure, it's good enough. You know, that, that doesn't cut it. You, you have to show that, that it's effective. And that's, you know, as I mentioned uh, earlier in, in the podcast, it's one of the reasons that Greenlight Guru is here is to give you a solution that is designed for you, the medical device professional, that yes, of course, we, we address the compliance piece, but we give you workflows and a system to help you better manage and evaluate the effectiveness of your quality management system. So I would encourage you, if you have an interest in becoming a true quality professional and to elevate your effectiveness of your quality management system, reach out to us, www.greenlight.guru. If you're just fine with being that C student and you're happy with signing a piece of paper that says you're trained and you're fine with your paper-based procedure and and going through the motions, don't call me. Do not call me if that's <laughs> because you know we're not going to align well with one another. Uh, we're not TurboTax for for med device, you know, and I think that that sometimes people want that automated thing. You, you got to live it. It's got to be part of who you are as a medical device professional. Um, Mike, I want to thank you again. Uh, I always enjoy these conversations, and and I had a real good time on this topic today. Uh, folks, if you want to uh, learn more about Mike Drews and vascular sciences, I would encourage you to reach out to him. You can find them all over the place. Uh, LinkedIn is a great example, a number of other industry publications. But be sure to go check out some of his content, some of his writing, some of his webinars. He's a very uh, progressive uh, thought leader on quality and regulatory and uh, a real great resource if if you're working on on, uh, creative regulatory strategies. Yes, you heard me, creative regulatory strategies. There's nothing wrong with that concept. So Mike, thank you so much for for being part of the Global Medical Device Podcast today. 